From the Financial Times in London, I'm John Thornhill, and this is the first episode of Tectonic, an FT podcast looking at the way technology is changing our economies, our societies, and our daily lives, and even the way we think. Each week, we'll look at a different aspect of the digital landscape with the help of scientists, entrepreneurs, and academics. If things continue like this, they could get much worse. And if they get really worse, then we're going to have what always happens with capitalism. It seems to not be able to do things before they have a crisis. Those were the words of our first guest, Professor Carlotta Perez of the London School of Economics. Back in the 1980s, she noticed that economies adapt to technological disruption in fairly predictable cyclical ways. Her book from 2002, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, The Dynamics of Bubbles and Golden Ages, has been described as a roadmap for scholars and investors wanting to know what happens next. Welcome, Carlotta. Thank you. Could you briefly describe, first of all, the five technological revolutions you cover in your book? Yes, of course. The first one was the so-called Industrial Revolution in England, machines, factories, canals, at the end of the 18th century. Then around 1829, we have the age of steam, coal, iron and railways. From 1875 about, we have the age of steel and heavy engineering, electrical, chemical, civil, naval. That was actually the first globalization. Because of steamships and transcontinental railways, it was possible to create world markets for the first time. And then from 1908, with Ford's Model T, we have the age of the automobile, oil, petrochemicals, and mass production. That covered most of the 20th century until about 1971, when we have the beginning of the age of information technology and telecommunications, which in my view is only halfway through. And into the future, we can think of the age of biotech, nanotech, bioelectronics, new materials, and it could be within 20 or 30 years, because the technologies that will make the revolution are always there in gestation somehow. What do all these five revolutions have in common, in your view? Well, the most important thing they have in common is the way that they evolve. They evolve in two separate periods with a bubble in the middle. The installation period, which is the first period, is one of creative destruction. So each time we have had a very important infrastructure that defines the markets, that widens the markets. But there is always a bubble at the end of that installation period. And that crashes horribly most of the time. What happens in the installation period is that there is normally a very strong polarization of income. A lot of people unemployed, disemployed. There are industries that are destroyed, regions that lose out. When the bubble collapses, all those things are super visible. So the second phase of each revolution, which I call the deployment period, is better. Is the time when truly the whole power of the technology spreads completely and it includes the social benefits. And in what ways does the current revolution that we're going through, the fifth of your revolutions, differ from the four that preceded it? Well, first of all, I have to say that it's similar in the way it has followed the script up to now. But we've had two crashes, have we not? This time we had two crashes, but in the previous globalization, we had about seven crashes in different places. This time we've had two, and we might even have a third, unfortunately, I think. I hope we can avoid it, but it doesn't look like we might. The important thing is that the previous revolutions had the golden age after the recession that follows the crash. And we could now perhaps have a 
global sustainable golden age. I think it is perfectly possible with the current technologies. What would be necessary to bring that golden age about? How do we need to kind of tilt the playing field to enable that to happen? Well, tilt the playing field is the word. The first thing we have to understand is that every golden age has had to do with sociopolitical choices made by governments because capitalism really only becomes legitimate when the greed of some is for the benefit of the many. I think in order to tell you what has to be done next time, I have to give you an example from the past because otherwise we don't learn anything from history. And that's why it's important to understand how revolutions happened before. The mass production revolution brought the post-war boom. Now, what happened then? If we look at the 1930s, we have some similarities with today. We see xenophobia. We see a lot of people angry and following that time, fascism and communism now all sorts of extremisms, right and left, leaders that really offer heaven, even though they cannot deliver. But the whole thing is that people are angry and disappointed. But you also have something else which is very important, which is that there is an enormous technological potential which is not being used. Not enough investment is going in the possible innovations because there is not enough demand. And demand is normally created by some policies, but it has to be policies that are adequate for that particular revolution. So what was the previous revolution? It was about mass production. So what was the direction in which it was tilted? Well, first of all, it was the World War. And with the World War, it was obvious that producing a lot of weapons made a lot of good business and they became cheaper and better and so on. But then at the end of the war, governments did something very important. They created a set of policies that favored suburbanization. Before the automobile, you had railways, so you only had stations, and the land in between was very cheap. It had no way of being used. But once you have the automobile, you can build cheap, mass-produced houses to put lots of electrical appliances inside and a car at the door. And at the same time, governments made the welfare state so that workers could buy those houses. So you have homeownership and consumerism. That's one of the directions. And the other direction was the Cold War, of course, so that you had innovation going in the two directions. If we had stayed in what was visible in the 30s, it was very difficult to imagine this golden age that came after the war. The same thing is happening to us now. In order to get the technologies to go in the right direction, you've got to tilt the playing field. And I hold that the most effective way of doing that today is tilting it towards green. Now, you've been contributing to that debate. There's a book that's out this year on rethinking capitalism in which you've written a chapter on green innovation. How can technology help save the planet? Well, in order to create employment, in order to overcome inequality, we need to find a direction that's capable of creating enormous amounts of innovation opportunities, but especially something which I have called a synergistic space. That means that everybody goes in similar directions so that suppliers, skills, education, the sorts of financial innovations that are made become advantages for everybody. That is exactly what happened with the mass production world. To just give a very clear example, there are two things that were super important at that time. One was consumer credit so that people could buy houses, cars, and electrical appliances on installments. And the other thing that was necessary was that when people lost their jobs, you would have unemployment insurance so you could continue paying. Otherwise, can you imagine everything going back to the sellers if people lost their jobs in recessions or whatever? Well, today we have a lot of financial innovation to do. 
And green innovation has got to be financed in different ways. We've seen some examples of that with Bill Gates and the Breakthrough Energy Coalition and so on. Do you think that's a good initiative? It's a good initiative and we need many more. But it isn't just a question of investing in renewable energy. Because when I say green and when I talk about green growth, I'm not just talking about global warming. I'm talking about something much wider. It means new lifestyles, which are less energy and materials intensive, many more experience, health, exercise. You know, what the elite is doing today would become the lifestyle for everybody, which is what happened before. Because the elite in the 1930s was having houses on electrical appliances and all the rest on cars. And that's what happens each time. Who can have an electric car now? People who have a lot of money because they're more expensive. They will become cheaper when demand grows. And demand grows when changes are made so that demand grows. The other things that we need to do, which are very important, apart from finance understanding that it has to innovate in the direction of needs, is that we need to get finance to be interested in investing long term. And that means a true change of the conditions. Most people worry about controlling finance. Well, yes, you have to control finance, the bad guys. But lots of people are not bad guys. They just can't find what to invest in. So they keep on doing little things and playing around with whatever they can. So right now, a lot of cash is sitting idle and it could be used for innovation, but it's not being done because the playing field is not tilted. If you were in charge, what would you do to incentivize that capital to target long-term investment, particularly in the green area? First thing I would change, the tax system radically, but so radically that you would hardly recognize it. The first thing is that the tax system is completely wacky. It taxes salaries when we want employment. So you have payroll taxes and then you have VAT, which everybody sings the virtues of. But in fact, VAT is a tax on salaries and profits, which is what value added is. So yes, it's very easy to capture, but it's very bad because it taxes the goods. We wanted to tax the bads. So we need to first of all change taxes to tax energy, materials, and transport so that we change the playing field in such a way that people start looking how to save materials, how to save on energy, how to go in that direction. And that requires lots of innovation, innovation in materials, innovations in new methods of production, the whole range of things. The other thing that has to be done is to change the way that capital gains are taxed. We probably would need to tax capital gains that are made within one day, which is high frequency. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. trading to pay 92% tax and the ones that are made in one week to pay 85% tax and the ones that are made in one year 65% tax and we go down 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 
any capital gains you make after five years, you pay zero. And that way you immediately change the playing field towards long term. So people will be looking for innovations and things that can be good investment for five years. Now, I'm trying to reconcile what you've been saying with the theories of Robert Gordon, who recently made a bit of a splash with his book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, making the case that we are massively exaggerating the impact of technology at the moment. But if I understand you right, you're not saying that it's the technology that is lacking, but you're saying it's the financial investment that is needed in order to propel that innovation and technology forward. Is that right? Two things are needed. One is finance. But the other is sociopolitical choices. So it means, for instance, that if you were to favor people who would change GDP towards services, you know, if you don't tax employment, but you tax materials, services would be better than goods, right? And goods that have less material and less energy would be more profitable and competition would go in that direction. If you were, for instance, to change the incentives and regulations so that rental of goods doesn't pay taxes or whatever, pays very little taxes, but selling goods pays more. Imagine that the whole business model were to change to rental. We have technologies to make goods last 90 years, and we have 3D printing to make parts and spares and things to keep them alive and to keep them improving all the time. Well, can you imagine the amount of maintenance workers that would be employed if we had that business model instead of the buy use and throw away. Just changes like that, which have to do, of course, with having consensus, because you cannot do this from government. We've got to change not only the policies, we've got to change the process by which you make the policies. So policies have to take into account a consensus building process, which is a new mechanism and a new institution. We also need to overcome the bureaucratic aspects of government. You know, the big companies in mass production times use the same bureaucratic model that states use then and continue to use today. And that is a huge problem. We've got to change the state. We have to change the way it relates to people, the way it relates to business, the way it relates to itself and the way it's organized. And do you think technology can help bring about that new oh, political certainly. change and new consensus that is needed? Absolutely. One way is just using computers. I mean, actually doing a lot of things relating to people directly. You know, there are so many possibilities of using them in a much more modern way. But there is something else, which is a way of thinking, a new common sense about how you do things. That is as much a part of the technological revolution as the technologies themselves. It used to be that everything was organized in a pyramid, centralized, and you divided the task bit by bit, and people just did a bit. Now, no, people do the whole task as a group, and people collaborate. It's a very different way of organizing, and that has to happen in the state as much as it is already happening in most advanced companies. Carlotta, you've suggested that some countries in the developing world might be able to leapfrog the developed world in terms of using technology in faster and more innovative ways. Could you expand on that a bit? What do you have in mind? Okay, well, there are little examples that we can give of this possibility, like, for instance, Kenya with their M-Pesa, where they managed to get people to have banks just on their mobile phone and not a real bank, but the actual mobile phone company becoming a bank. But there is something much bigger that we have to look at. This is the second globalization. Out of the five revolutions, only two, this one and the third, have been global. So we have to learn from that third one. In that third one, 
the U.S. and Germany were able to forge ahead and catch up with England, and the U.S. at the end became the leader of the world rather than Britain. And Germany lost the war, and that's why it didn't become the leader. So in fact, what China is doing today is a perfect parallel with what happened, and then and the same with Japan and the Four Tigers and so on. We are now in this between installation and deployment, which is like a turning point period when things will change. Government has to intervene because normally the second half is more led by production than by finance and it's supported by the state. So now, in order to have enough demand for the advanced countries, we need the developing world to develop because the advanced countries can no longer be the producers of mass consumer goods. They could be the producers of advanced, green, sustainable capital goods for the developing world, while the developing world then produces and sells. So everybody would be benefiting. We need to change the way of life. The American way of life, which was the model that was followed during the post-war boom, is now still being copied. And everybody is aspiring to that. We need to have a sort of new, I would call it a European way of life, perhaps, which is more about health, more about exercise, more about entertainment, which is experiential rather than couch potato style. If that were to happen, that would make it possible for the developing world to develop. Otherwise, we don't have seven planets. We cannot do American way of life for all the Chinese and all the Indians and everybody else. But there's a certain irony in what you're saying that the West Coast of America, which has been so much at the forefront of leading technological innovation, is in a way enabling countries like China to leapfrog America. Well, but that's exactly what the UK did in the past. What they did was to leave behind industries in the UK, which did not develop electricity and steel and chemistry, were very much the industries that Germany and the US used to leapfrog whereas Britain was taking care of the railways and the things in Australia, in New Zealand, in South Africa, in Argentina, the whole of the Southern Hemisphere, plus funding a lot of what the U.S. was doing, not Germany, but a lot of what the U.S. was doing. So this has happened before. I think it's great that China is developing, and I don't think there is anything one should do to stop it. But we need to develop more countries, the whole of Africa, the Middle East. Do you realize that all these migratory pressures have to do with the fact that people have horrible lives? Not talking about the wars, but perhaps the causes of the wars have to do with precisely the level of dissatisfaction and so on. But we need a better global world, which is sustainable socially too. And that is what will stop problems like migrations and lack of demand for what these countries could do. The prevailing ideology on the West Coast of America is pretty much that of a libertarianism, that uh, government should simply get out the way in order for progress to happen. But you're saying that wise and active governments are really essential for helping to shape those markets and incentivize people in order to progress. Is that right? Well, I have been telling them that they are making a huge mistake. They think they can solve every problem with just technology and governments should get out, which, by the way, has to do with how they developed in the early times. But it so happens that the people who would benefit most from a proper worldwide tilting of the playing field would be the ICT people. The whole of the technology world are the ones who have the most to gain. You know, with mass production, Charlie Wilson of General Motors was being proposed for a job in government and everybody said, oh, you know, General Motors. Blah, blah, blah. 
And he said, what's good for General Motors is good for the U.S. and vice versa. And he was absolutely right. And what's good for the world, for the global economy, is good for the ICT companies and vice versa. And they should be the first to be lobbying governments for smart grids so that we can use all the various technologies. They should be lobbying governments for getting infrastructure for electric cars and all sorts of things. And also for income distribution across the world. I mean, not income distribution in a simple way. We have to find ways of doing it in such a manner that it will really move investment. You know, governments are not really understanding that they are the ones who are guilty. Austerity is austericide. You know, if a CEO of any company had the type of results that these policies have had in the last eight years, they would already be out. They wouldn't last eight years. How could these governments continue doing something that's not working? What are they waiting for? And the libertarians don't realize it either. But they will, because if things continue like this, they could get much worse. And if they get really worse, then we're going to have what always happens with capitalism. It seems to not be able to do things before they have a crisis. You know, last time we had to have a world war for things to change. So let's hope we don't need a world war now. Let's hope we don't need a third crisis. Let's hope we can understand the moment we're living and we can start working because it's not easy, you know, to invent what to do and to try it out. We have to try it out in pilot things. We have to have people who are really experts. We have to have business come in and work with government people to see what could be done. But to know that the task is enormous and it requires being bold, being imaginative, being as imaginative and bold as the Keynesian revolution was after the World War. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much, Carlotta, for a fascinating discussion. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.